Hello there in internet land, and welcome once again to the DD Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Merles, and with me today is Rodney Thompson. Hello. So this is a special edition of the podcast. Um, now, with time available and stuff notwithstanding, hopefully we can do this more often. But uh, you may have noticed that last Friday we ran a D&D game that we live streamed on the internet on uh, Twitch, uh, Twitch TV. And this podcast is essentially a follow-up to that. Kind of captures some of the processes we go through when we're assessing the game as we work on it. Where we play test, then we talk about the game. It's, it's Sometimes we will, if we're just playing to play test, we'll stop and talk about a rules point or something a lot of times too when we're actually doing play tests they're a lot different than the game that you saw uh we have stress tests and Roddy, why don't you talk a little bit about the the, the stress test concept our stress testing process is a lot like playtesting super intensified. Basically what we do is we'll go into a stress test with certain goals, certain mechanics we want to analyze, and we will really hammer on those mechanics without a lot of the stuff that goes around that portion of, uh, of the role-playing game. So, for example, if we really want to test how well a certain class is doing in combat, we will basically jump right in and do many back-to-back combats, super intense uh, testing this specific mechanic or this specific monster or something like that. And it basically is, uh, one of our mantras is if we start slowing down, we say, uh, too much role-playing, keep going, keep going, right? Because, <laughs> you know, all of our natural tendencies are to to fall into stuff like that. But if we're testing, you know, the, this class's combat mechanics or if we're turning around and testing this particular monster or, you know, oh, we really want to test the exploration rules, it is a much more intense, less framing narrative, less uh, really framing gameplay uh, around that. So that's that's our stress testing process, which is what we use to really zoom in on individual mechanics. Yeah. Now, the normal playtest process is we basically just play D&D with the latest rules. Right. Like, there's a lot of... You get a lot of uh, practical information out of that kind of uh, play as well. It's That's best for... We don't have anything specific we want to test at this exact moment, but we need just general testing going on in order to get good feedback on, you know, what's working in general and what's not, and also to identify things that we later will then playtest more intensely. I mean, if, if a problem comes up in a more generalized you know, standard D&D adventure style playtest, we can then take that and say, okay, this thing created a problem in one of our playtest games. Let's refine it and then stress test it, right? And so it's kind of a weeding out process and that's why it's good to have many groups doing the sort of high-level overview standard D&D adventure playtesting and then identify problems and zoom in on those in the stress tests. Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to two different approaches people take to DMing or the campaigns Mm -hmm. they run. What I think is the strength of that, of that approach and why we use it is when people say are running a home game or a more casual game, they're running it just as a DM with their own particular preferences because DMs have different ways they want to run right. games. Right. So the game, that, uh, the game of yours that I play in on Tuesday night, you have your approach to DMing. Right. And then I have, I have like my approach and everyone has, you know, different ways they approach. Like I know for myself, I would be a terrible person to say, hey, like, I get to decide exactly what D&D is like in terms of catering exclusively exclusively and only to my DMing preferences because I'd be just like, I don't need rules, right? right. Like, yeah. I don't care about any of the I just need to know a basic idea of, like, monster stats and everything else I just make up. Right. But that's just how I run things, right? Because right? I've been playing D&D since, like, 1981. I don't – what I just need are, are rules that are easy and fast for me to use, right? As opposed to other DMs who are more, well, I want the rules. I want to create a challenge within the rules and work within the rules because that's, that's challenging and more interesting to that type of DM. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit closer to that style of DM in that I do a lot of prep work in advance of my sessions. I mean, you're, you're playing my 
game and you always see that every yeah. session I come with two to four pages of notes. Those those notes I bring to the, each session are new each session. I don't bring old notes to the session. Basically, well, I, I do, but I'm bringing a fresh set of prep that I use the standard rules to do all my prep work and I build all my monsters and I plan out my encounters. And then when I'm at the table, though, I'm much more freeform. So basically, I want a lot of the front end uh, rules and, and, and prep work uh, to do away from the table. When I'm at the table, I want to run it. I don't want to say fast and loose, but I want to be able to change gears quickly to change the pacing as you know we see things are going in the, in the session. So I'm a little bit closer to that style, I think, than, than you are. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting because D&D, unlike other games, it's part of why I like working on the game, um, is there are DMs who would say, we don't know how this works, so let's look it up. And there are DMs who would think, well, let me just make a ruling or I'll just whatever for someone to roll a die. And your game has to support both. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to have a game where we assume you're going to look everything up. Like, or I'm sorry, we have to assume you can look everything up because there right. will be a DM who wants that. But if you have to look everything up, the DM who's more, I'm just kind of a storyteller or stage manager. Or I'm just here to entertain people. Is that getting away of that person's style? Mm-hmm. You know, but obviously the guy who wants the rules to tell him, you know, hey, I'm not really sure how this should work. So I need a rule to help me out here. You don't want that person to be left, you know, high and dry. So it's a very interesting balancing act. And I think it's probably been one of the more difficult things working on next is getting that balance down correct. Yeah. Because I think D&D has gone to extremes. We've never had mm-hmm. the middle ground. <laughs> we've had either kind of like make it up or we've had here's the exact rule for climbing a a ladder in a windstorm of, with winds of 80 miles an hour and it's raining out, right? Like as opposed to just who knows how you climb, right? Like yeah. um, like a basic D&D where especially well, that, in the red box, there's no real rules for that. Yeah, that's where I really like having sort of I, – I like having both because when I'm at the table, I don't want to have to look things up. But I don't mind looking things up away from the table, right? If I'm sitting down to build my dungeon in advance. And I know that there is a room in the dungeon with 80 mile an hour winds and it's raining in that room and they have to climb a ladder. I don't mind being able to look and say, okay, what kind of stuff would this do to the, to the DC? And then and then write that in my yeah. my prep notes, right? So like I, I want to do that away from the table, not at the table. And again, that's just my personal style is I don't mind the prep work, but I, I do want at the table. Basically, I like it if 90% of everything I need at the table, I can keep in my head. Yeah. And then that extra 10% is what I did the prep work for. Yeah. It is tricky because you want to give a rule, but you also want to give the rule that says don't use this unless you want to. Like never – like the idea of rules lowering and stuff from a player, it's always like, well, that's more someone's suggestion. Like that's the way I think the game should run is the DM is the host, right? The DM is kind of like this is my game. We use the word my specifically because there is a sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. The DM is running the campaign while the players have a stake in it. The way D&D works, the DM has a bigger stake in it. Mm-hmm. And so rules lawyering as like, oh, like the player is going to use the rules against the DM. Like if there's a way we could have very comprehensive rules but ensure that no one ever tried to buffalo a DM with them, that would be perfect, <laughs> right? Because yeah, then you'd have the DM was like, I want to use the rules, just use them. And the DM was like, I just want to kind of make up stuff as we go. Then they're both comfortable. And that's why I think there's, it's useful to have the sort of the marker of DM rules versus player rules of mm-hmm. saying – Hey, players, here's generally the rules how they work, but your DM will, will determine at the end of the day how this actually works. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's easier for a DM to do a deep dive or a shallow dive based on their preferences than to try and guess what the players want, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, on the player side, the players kind of have to follow the rules because they're not 
always making up the world exactly. as they go along. The DM is making up the world and the adventures. And the DM gets to choose, like, do I want to be, like, the guy who really follows the rules really tightly or do I want to run a little more fast and loose? And it's a lot easier for a DM to make that choice and have the game run just fine than it is for the players to be trying to make that choice. Yeah. It, does, it doesn't always work as easily because that's one person having to decide how to run things as opposed to six people having to agree on it. Exactly. And it's tricky because... What we, I mean, when you look at D&D as a game, as the culture around it, what we need more of, more anything else, are DMs. Yeah. And so the easier you can make it for the DM to just decide, I'm not going to care about the details, or I am going to care about the details, having that carry through, rather than saying every DM has to DM this one way. Right. The, you make it much easier. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, without, without DMs, you don't have a group. And so, I mean, you could, <laughs> they're like, they're, in my experience, at least, it's always been easy to find players. It's been hard to find a DM. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of our philosophy is to say, we'd rather let the DM figure out how many of the rules you're going to use or ignore, because if the DM isn't comfortable running the game, there is no game. You know, if you as a player don't like the way your DM's running the game, you just go find another DM. Yeah. Or if none of the players like the game, they just all leave. Right. But if you can't, like, if, if you can't find a DM because... Or there's only one type of DM we can possibly support that's going to really hurt the game in the long run. Well, and that's why I think that our, our sort of layered approach to the rules are when we talk about our basic rules, our advanced rules, etc. This is where I think it actually is going to uh, be better for Dungeon Masters because if the guy who wants to run a game a little more fast and loose runs the game his way and the you know the DM that wants to really have a lot of rules for you know monster building and terrain and obstacles and hazards and whatever is also running the game using you know, all those things. And those two DMs are running, are, are actually both playing by the rules accurately and there's a through line between what they're doing that matches up. I think that's sort of the ultimate goal because that means that fast and loose guy and super rules intensive guy, they are both playing by the rules. Yeah. This DM has simply chosen to use more of the rules, right? Yeah. It's not like, okay, well, you're breaking rules if you play this way. No, no, no. You... You're choosing to use a subset that gives you what you need, right? So it, and it's important to remember that that guy needs the basic streamlined rules. The other player needs – the other dungeon master needs more. He needs those monster design guidelines and here's how to create you know crazy set piece encounters to make him happy. And I think that's – the ultimate goal is that that is not in a different set of rules. That is a layer on top of the rules that, that will make that DM happy. So, so anyways, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's an important thing to talk about because that, that's yeah. really what's, that's the big goal is just with, with next is to just, is, is embracing the idea that people play D and D for different reasons and there's no one right way to DM and there's no one right way to play. It's like, we're kind of like making a set of paints and we're not going to tell you like what picture to paint. We're just going to say, here are some interesting tools, use them as you will. And, and the tricky thing with an RPG is you're kind of painting as a group, but one guy like owns the canvas in a way, right? Yeah. So there is like that one player, the DM, who has a little more authority than the rest. Yeah. So speaking of the game we ran, yes. what what was your takeaway in terms of putting on your designer hat? Like what, what was your takeaway of things that you saw that came up that you thought, oh, this didn't really work out well or this would need some work? So there were a few things that sort of immediately popped up. Um, and part of it, I, I think, is during the live stream, I didn't want to, you know, stop the game and say... Oh, yeah, and that's hey, kind of what we're doing. Right, right, exactly. I didn't want to say, hey, this is what's going on and yeah. we should think about this. But, like, you know... I think we're already on thin ice. Like, are, would people enjoy watching us play? 
Maybe. Would people enjoy watching us argue about right. whether the, <laughs> this thing is working? Probably really not. But yeah. <laughs> so. all, all the scintillating action of sitting in a conference room <laughs> and listening to us talk about things. I mean, yeah. So, But then again, that's what the people that are listening to this podcast are exactly. going to get. So, so, hey. hey, it's just like our approach to the rules. If you opted into this. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You've chosen to get that layer of icing on the cake. Uh, so I, I did take some notes sort of on the side and things that I, I wanted to address. And it's funny. Uh, I didn't actually know what we were doing in this podcast until we walked in here and I had just finished sending an email to you about one of those issues. Um, but I think one of the things that popped out for me were there are a few places where we've got a little bit of weirdness with some of our saving throws. Um, oh, God, yeah. The, the ghoul, for example. The freaking right? the ghoul. That, sorry, the ghoul irritated me. Yeah. And the, the thing about the ghoul is the ghoul is actually sort of a two-part uh, issue right now because on the one hand, you know, the ghoul needs to be sort of scary and like the paralysis effect is really classic and everything. But on the other hand, it's making multiple attacks and uh, each of those attacks is saves. making... Yeah, exactly, so, right? And, and the, the thing is... The, the multiple saves then in turn distort the any kind of, you know, other saving throw issues we might yeah. have, right? <laughs> saving throw issues, yeah. Yeah. No, I had the same exact – so for background, so I basically – I ran the module not quite cold. I just reviewed it maybe a half hour before I ran it. The, a lot of the backstory stuff was like based on reading the module and seeing some stuff that's in there plus some stuff for the next session, which we'll be recording, the plot thickens and all that. <laughs> but yeah, as soon as the ghoul showed up, I'm like, well, in the original module, there's like eight ghouls and two ghasts or like ten. I'm like, there's no way this can work. And then I'm like, well, should it be working or not? I was like, okay, I'm going to punt that question. I'm yeah. just going to try to make this work. So, okay, there's going to be four ghouls. And part of me was like, okay, that was like, you know, kind of scary. And like they're trying to drag you off and stuff. And But part of it was like, man, this is like a lot harder than I really kind of wanted it to be as a DM, mm -hmm. right? Because I was thinking, no, this shouldn't be to your fifth level characters. These are like, what are they, second or third level monsters? Yeah, something like that. They got the drop on you because, I mean, whoever... When you guys were doing your your checks, basically establish like your your passive you know perception right. kind of thing. The um they beat that, so okay, yeah. you're gonna get ambushed. It was like okay, your cleric like wandered into the room, so that's not very good because he's gonna be the first person to get jumped on. But yeah, like rolling the three attacks and then the three saves, that yeah. was just a real beating. Well, I mean, I th I think what it really boils down to is that we've we've got these saving throws on each of those three attacks, right? And then that in turn is three chances to fail the saving throw. And we know failure is really bad, but the the thing is, I think when we look at like the XP value of the ghoul, for example, we we sort of looked at it as like, okay, this thing makes multiple attacks and they do this much damage, and then this thing can paralyze you, and that's worth X amount, not really take into account how both of those things combine with each other. And so there's there's a little bit of just like, okay, obviously the ghoul in its current incarnation is tougher than its XP value would suggest or its level would suggest. But I think also part of it is just the gameplay ex experience side of it. Three chances to, to apply an effect that takes someone out for a, a round or more. And with the terrible dice luck we had. I mean, I, I should have gotten out of the, the paralysis very fast. I mean, I had a really good con and everything, but then I didn't, and I kept failing my saving throw, and then, you know, it, it's sort of a a problem compounding another problem uh, type issue that I, I think that when we look at any of those, you know, sort of take you out of the combat effect. I mean, it's sort of like how you would treat stun in in fourth edition, right? We used it pretty sparingly, and not a lot of monsters paralyze you in 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 the bestiary right now. Yeah. So, I mean, we are seeing an example of okay, this is an exceptional monster that is going to paralyze you, but yeah, just the three chances on every multi attack to you know to, to paralyze you, I think, is it's not a great bit of monster design right now, and 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 I. 
I don't want to downplay sort of the the system side of thing, which is the saving throw thing, which we haven't even really talked about yet. But yeah. also, like the you know just the content design of the ghoul obviously needs some revision. Yeah, my feeling is my big issue with it was these are third third level monsters going against a fifth level party. And yeah, they got the drop on you, but it felt a little too life or death for like they're supposed to be that level. Yeah. The issue right now is, and so this kind of ties into a bigger picture thing of now that we have we have the class content pretty much solid, you know, based on feedback and some of the changes we've made. This is really now the the, the, the segment of the of the of the process where we lock in the math. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense to lock in the math, but be like, well, but the thing you're doing isn't fun. Or it isn't really true to what the class should be or what mm-hmm. people expect it to be or want it to be. Getting the math right without getting that right first doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. because we've just, okay, we've made this mathematically perfect system that no one actually likes playing. Yeah. And so what struck me about it was the um, up to this point, we really haven't had many saving throw bonuses right. other than your stat modifier. The thing that irritated me the most about it was thinking, I think this fight would have been just as hard if you were 10th level characters. You yeah, know, like still four ghouls jumping on a 10th level cleric as opposed to the 5th level cleric would have had roughly the same ability to take you down. Sure. And I, so I think I wouldn't be surprised. Like one of the things I've been thinking of is if we just did something simple like you add half your character level to all your saving throws. Mm-hmm. You know, and so then we know, okay, saving throw DCs will scale up a bit. The important thing for me being low level creatures have lower DCs, higher level creatures can have higher DCs just like you'd kind of expect, mm-hmm. and that fits into what should be going on in the game. The other nice thing is that if you look at dragons or something like that, when you have these very powerful creatures, if you can imagine the, the dragon attacking a, a village, mm-hmm. the dragon's saving throw DC for its breath is higher. That just makes it deadlier. Like, you know, the, the town militia that shows up to try pelting with arrows, those guys are really terrified because the breath hits them, it's going to kill them. Yeah. They, they're probably going to blow their saves. Probably even if they make their saves, they're going to die. Right. But there's that aspect of just like, oh, yeah, the creature's a little scarier now. It's a little less random when it's fighting mobs of guys. Because mm-hmm. we've had some issues when we've been playing with the mob effect of the 10th level fighter is more afraid of the eight orcs than he is of the single hill giant. Right. You know, so kind of finding some ways around that. And we, we've taken a little bit of that into account when we look at like our encounter building guidelines. If you're fighting many monsters, if you're outnumbered, that's obviously a much tougher fight because there are, again, more opportunities. And then when you think about, okay, now there are many lower level monsters that have multi-attacks. That's even more opportunities for things like paralysis or other status effects to get, get slapped on you. So there, I mean, there are obviously still some challenges there. Yeah. And I, I think the saving thing. Um, another, the, so the funny thing about saving throws is you look at something like uh, attack bonuses and we give you a scaling attack bonus if you're a weapon using class, right? And there's a spell casting bonus right now as well. But saving throws don't have a similar scaling on them, right? And yeah. the, the, the big goal of what we've called bounded accuracy up to this point is not for you to remain static, but for you to get better at a reasonable pace so that lower level monsters stay relevant. They don't completely fall out, but they should get easier, right? You should have an easier time fighting something that is lower level, but you should still be able to fight them in the context of an adventure and not have it be completely ridiculous, like you just completely lost them entirely, right? So I think that, you know, saving throws might be another area where we want to look at a similar bonus. I think the plus half level might be a little extreme, but... Uh, you know, we we scale attack bonus. We should consider something like that for for saving throws as well. Yeah, and and if you look at something like the ghoul, you could argue, okay, if you're higher level, and this actually is an argument against having like breaking up their attacks into three when really mm-hmm. they're just three small attacks rather than mm-hmm. just having like an attack, a single claws attack that can do half and damage. Right. Is if you're like a tenth level fighter fighting a bunch of ghouls, 
you ever maybe nervous about getting paralyzed in the back of your mind because there's like 10 of them and right. they have to make a bunch of saves? Right. But at that point, you're probably more afraid. Just There's 10 of them. They're all going to attack you. you right. know, just, like the orcs. They're, and that's what kind of made me think about half level. So you could kind of say, hey, as creatures like become lower level relative to you, their physical attacks remain a threat, mm-hmm. which is nice because that's a nice threat against all characters, whether you're the wizard or the fighter, you're still kind of worried about sure. that. But their special effects start to fade out. Like lower level characters worried about ghoul paralysis. Higher level ones really aren't mm-hmm. because they know I can probably make the save. The DC is low enough or my bonus is high enough. And, well, so, and, and that's a great example too. Like paralysis is effectively infinitely scaling. Exactly. Because paralysis against a higher level character is tef- technically a more powerful effect than it was Ex- against a lower level character. Exactly. And that's what we don't want is, yeah, like, you know, you can imagine in the when the vampire and his minions attack the high level party or attack the village, the, the answer is, hey, who's going to take on the 10th level fighter who lives in town? Well, the vampire will go deal with him personally. It's not the vampire sends 10 ghouls right you know, <laughs> the 10 ghouls attack the town guard right or, or you right. know leading the zombies or skeletons it's you don't want to have these distortions in the story like the physics of dnd right. the game world right where it's like that just is kind of weird that like the the chumpy minion guys are attacking right. a hero that oh, huh, but like, but i could see in the context the same context right the vampire sends his ghouls to attack the fighter to wear him down exactly. like hit point wise right exactly. because it's like okay i don't want to fight the fighter at full hit points because he will wreck me so i will send my cannon fire in, yeah, they're probably not going to take him out, but they still can do something, yeah. right? And maybe and, they'll get lucky and paralyzed. Right. But it's going to be more like, well, now we're looking at he needs a, yeah, a bad roll or yeah. something like that. To, yeah, so that was my big takeaway, too. The other interesting thing, this is kind of like my secret, this might make you wince because I know you since you're doing a lot of the balancing, I don't use any of the DM prep stuff when I sure. run because sure. part of me just wants to know that I can, drawing on my years of experience as a DM, come up with roughly balanced encounters or roughly fun encounters or usable encounters just by feel. Yeah. Right. Like you, if you're familiar with something enough, you should be able to just kind of gut it from, you know, my mm-hmm. point of view as far as like, you know, 30 years playing the game. Mm-hmm. Most of it, except for the ghouls, everything seemed to go pretty much the way I kind of expected. I mean, the orcs were just chumps like they were I mean, yeah. at fifth level. They really weren't supposed to be a threat. Right. The, well, I mean, in, in any edition of D&D, right, maybe, maybe uh, depending on what kind of orc you're fighting, basically fifth level characters shouldn't care as much yeah. about what four orcs right there's four orcs and there's like the four half orcs you talk to that you get oh right those guys to, yeah yeah and then there's the sundu which was like one of those like oh it's just basically a barrier from like a very the very tournament style right like, oh what's the puzzle and i mean your puzzle was just blew it up right. <laughs> That's, yeah whatever <laughs> i thought it was good <laughs> well that was part of the fun it was like okay why is all this stuff this way and so i've, I've come up with like a little plot that'll become more apparent as we okay. play next time like why things are the way they are and a lot of the stuff of the orcs and them being afraid so yeah, would there, does anything else stick out as like this would be an issue we would talk about like in a postmortem of the? I so I, I you know we talked about things that didn't work really well like the ghouls and some saving throw issues. I think those are still you know they're obviously sort of the top of the list. There are also some things that I thought worked really well. Like I was pleased with a lot of the class features. Um, some of that was invisible to a lot of the the people watching the game because yeah. we weren't taking every opportunity to explain every mechanic we were using. But also like we used the exploration rules. We used the dungeon exploration rules yeah. um, kind of invisibly, which I, I think is the way we want it to happen. Right? Is we yeah. want when you switched to exploration mode, there was sort of a seamless transition there where you asked us, you know, for our checks or whatever, and you recorded those, and then that was what you used to determine if the ghouls ambush us. We were using that process, but it just sort of flowed into the natural yeah. part of the game. And and I thought I think that's a great example of being able to identify something that the playtest, the the sort of all-around adventure playtest revealed is moving in the right direction. I think there's still some rough patches. Um, we've talked about those uh, offline as well, but I yeah. think that 
that was a good example of, okay, we have a set of rules that govern, you know, how you're exploring and what you find and do you get ambushed and you're able to use those and not break the narrative. And we didn't have to jump into a, okay, guys, here's the totally different thing that we're going to do for a while. It was, no, I'm going to keep watch and you're going to look for traps and, you know, so forth. So as a DM, what I really liked about that, but the one thing I liked about the ghoul fight, except mm-hmm. when I actually read the ghoul stat block, I was like, oh, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> was how the surprise went, where I didn't have to break up the flow of play, mm-hmm. where in some ways, Greg took his cleric, uh, was it Tree? It's cleric tree, cleric. yes, yeah. Tree, the cleric. The, um, you know, kind of blundered into the room because it was nice. I didn't have to go, oh, everyone, when you open the door, everyone make wisdom checks. Mm-hmm. Or what's your passive perception again? We'd already done or, that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of nice that I could just write down that number the and then just you know when you open the door, I just made the check for the ghouls. I also, I don't think I don't know if you noticed this. No one tried to sneak, mm-hmm. so the ghouls heard you coming. Mm-hmm. You know, like there wasn't a hey, let's try to be stealthy or anything like that. Yeah. So it's like okay, the ghouls definitely know you're coming because you're walking along, right. you know, talking and all this other stuff. The um, so that was also kind of nice too. A lot mm-hmm. of the stuff that before could interrupt the flow of the game and maybe give players kind of indicators of oh, he asked for wisdom checks. So maybe the cleric isn't going to go storming into the room because right. well there might be something here we just don't know well you, you made it like the the exploration rules make it an active thing that the player does and if there's an expectation that you are going to actively do something while exploring then that will just de- that will determine how all the reactive things like surprise uh how those work i think that that is a big step towards making it so that exploration just feels like a natural thing the other thing is i think this play of exploration rules highlighted some places where we can do some interesting things and in, like the classes that interact with this as well. So, for example, you said none of us were sneaking. Well, I was playing a rogue, and I felt like, you know, I needed to be searching for traps because I'm, I'm exactly. really good at that, right? Should I be able to search for traps and sneak at the same time? See, I would say I don't know if I would want you to. Maybe the yeah. answer is no, right? But It, it, it is interesting. The, the other thing we, we talked about, I know I don't, this hasn't been public yet, but we talked about incorporating, like, marching order yeah. in, a very, in a rough way to say, okay, if you're the rogue, you can sneak, and we assume you're like X feet ahead of the party. Right. So what I could imagine happening with the ghoul thing was the ghouls don't hear you coming. So when you walk up to the door and kind of peek in, they're like hanging out, lounging around. Right. And that's how you can get. And so even though the party, maybe you go back to the party and then the fighter and everyone else, okay, they can hear them coming, but you averted the ambush by by, by spotting them first. Right. Yeah. And, and, like, and that might also just be another case where we need to get more used to using the exploration rules, where I could have effectively said, okay, you guys wait back here. I'm going to sort of become my own party for a moment, exactly. right? Sneak ahead, look around, and then come back, right? And then then once we got up to the door, I'm checking for traps and, and what have you. So yeah. I, I think that's also just a part of like figuring out exactly how to make the, the exploration rules work to our best advantage. Yeah. And, you know, me as a rogue player, knowing, okay, I need to I need to be both looking out and searching for traps as well because if I'm going to be ahead of the party, that's kind of my job here is yeah. to to be the lookout. And that might be yeah, and that might be something interesting. They just a rogue class feature that just says you can when you're exploring, you can search for traps. And, and maybe like or when, you can always when it's see. just you, like yeah. when you're when you're not when you're off by yourself, you can both search for traps and you know sneak at the same time. I think that would be yeah. a cool thing. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to balance because what we don't want to have is um, a mechanic <laughs> where, and this is what we got back with the threshold mechanics we had, where it's like, hey, you you automatically find every trap with DC X or higher. Yeah, is it just turns the game makes the game too predictable? Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, okay, all my traps, you're either the rogue doesn't spot them or the rogue automatically spots them, mm-hmm. and that's where I like the die roll, the expiration rules coming in, rather than just a passive score, which is a set number. Yeah, because then as a DM, at least. I feel, and based on the feedback, I think a lot of people agree with with this statement, that it makes it too much as a DM. I'm kind of choosing to hose the players as opposed to like, 
hey, the kobolds have built a pit. They didn't do a good, good job hiding it. It's a DC 10 to spot it. If I know that you're always going to be to 10, then it's like, well, why am I kind of like, I guess I'll put that there. It's kind of a flavor. foregone conclusion, yeah, right? It's really just flavor. Like you're going to find like badly built traps. I right? mean, in the context of like a published adventure, it makes sense because like, you know, you, you, like you don't know what's going to be in that. But if yeah. you're a DM building your own adventure, you sort of know what your players can deal with. Yeah. And it's like, well, if there's no die roll, who like, why you just made it one higher or one lower and you're, you know, you're fine. I, I will say this though. I really missed the threshold mechanics uh when i was sneaking around because i was rolling terribly i mean <laughs> just just awfully i was the least sneaky rogue in See, the history of dnd i don't mind it though because to me that makes the game more interesting as a dm it makes things go in ways you might not have expected i you know it, it might be that this is pointing me towards like feet design because if there was a feat that i could take that said yeah. hey when you're sneaking you have a threshold i would have absolutely taken yeah. that that feet in a heartbeat but, but you you were able to sneak when it counted well actually no the orcs didn't even try to find you so yeah. you were just hidden you were just out of sight and they were yeah. just like so scared witless about no oh, crap we don't want to die tonight yeah that oh that was another thing i threw in so this is not an actual rule but during the fight at the end and this again this is where i like i mean this is what i like about third edition and and fourth when you have like a nice regular mechanic i just have the orcs make a wisdom save like okay right. these guys are gonna these guys so what i basically decided was these guys are going to run because three of their friends are dead and they're scared already because this is a creepy ass temple they're living in they want out i had to make a saving though to see if they're going to withdraw or run and i rolled a two and I think their wisdom was like plus one or zero. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what they just turned and took the opportunity attacks because they both basically just lost their minds with terror. Like, we're getting the hell out of here. We're scared. Well, I mean, they're facing fifth level adventurers who yeah. are, we were clearly outmatching them at that point. Yeah. And they were already nervous, already kind of like on edge. So, and that's the kind of probably my DMing style in a nutshell. I like to kind of surprise myself sometimes. Like, I think eh, this might happen this way or that. I'll just roll a die or I'll make a check on behalf of this NPC to see it's, what he does. It's really not that far off from some of the stuff we've been talking about with our interaction rules, though, because, I mean, you in one of your Legends and Lore, you talked about, you know, giving monsters certain traits that you can use to determine how they act, right? Yeah. I could very easily have seen that these particular orcs, since they had been cowed by the humans, effectively, and, and, and uh, were kind of you know, second banana in this city, I could see them having a trait that you could look at like, okay, they are cowardly or, you know, whatever. So that when you, when you looked at them, you say, okay, this, they would do this. And yeah. what, that's sort of what you already, what you did in your Just head. Right. Did. Yeah. My, right. my description of these guys, yeah. but in, in designing an adventure, we would want to use those. I think those interaction rules a little bit to say, okay, here's what's happened in the city. Here's, you know, what these orcs are having to deal with with the humans. They would act like this. Right. Yeah. And we can basically build that into the adventure or you know monster or whatever you want Basically, to say for those faceless orc npcs essentially having an a, a archetypal personality that they're all following. right the orcs serving the guys in this temple are they're cowardly they're malingerers they're looking for a way out you know, like when you when you fast talk the orcs and right. i don't know if you were thinking of this way but you said oh they're meat pies and they're like yeah that's plausible enough like <laughs> we'll leave now because we'd rather not be here but we're just kind of looking for an excuse to get out of well, here because this place is scary people keep dying and well what it led me to that point was you talked about basically how the the humans were clearly the top dogs right and the orcs who you know in the wilds would expect to be sort of the 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 bullies right yeah. were themselves being bullied so i was like okay they obviously don't you know, they, they don't like the situation that they're in. How can I get them to think that they can get out of it, yeah. right? And I think that's that's a case where what I was getting from the getting from the the adventure was mixing with sort of my knowledge of orcs in general and producing what my action was. And I think that that's sort of the basis of a lot of what we want our interaction rules to do eventually. 
And so what I think I want to do for the next session is I'll email everyone out, uh, everyone and say, hey, let's let's use. So we, we've actually been working on some core rules for role playing. And when yeah. I say core rules, I'm probably way overstating the actual depth. Of the <laughs> right. But there's this basic idea of like charting out your character's ties to the world and your personality traits. And so I think I'd like to I'm going to send I'm going to have, ask everyone to do that for their characters, like do that little sheet we had figured right. out basically the character sheet thing of their goals purpose drives and all yeah. that stuff and then do our little bennies kind of mechanic right. on top of it yeah. which right now is a core rule you guys haven't seen this yet but basically we have a core rule that's there to to reward role playing yeah. you act in character if you do things like oh that's kind of foolish but that's what your character would do to give you some rewards so i like to kind of feature that well, i think that'd be cool too because i don't i don't think people realize this but we were actually playing with pregens we didn't build yeah. these characters these are the the pregens out of ghost of dragon spear castle that we were using yeah. so uh none of us had really a lot of choices to make in uh in what character we played other than i will play this pregen so i think that'd be cool and i, I think also that would show off a little bit what we're looking forward to with our interaction and role-playing mechanics because it's a big part of that side of the game, I think. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Hopefully, when we uh, play again in live stream, we'll get to. We'll have the time. This is kind of an ad hoc thing we did, but I was just thinking, well, it'd be kind of nice to see the other side, the other the meeting that would follow up the the playtest. Right. And we can keep these going, give you guys some commentary, and maybe show off also some other people from R and D DMing, so you can see some different styles that are in the game. <laughs> you get to see me play, which I don't know. I'd have to edit myself. It's uh, dangerous and psychotic. Those are the two words I would use. Yeah, I am. I am probably a player the most people. I don't know. I, no, I, kind of, you're, you're great, Mike. You're, you're a I'm great lost. instigator. <laughs> the instigator personality was built for Mike Merles. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say I like, I play Kender, but. <laughs> not quite that far. Yeah, not that far, but it's in that direction, so. Yeah. All right, well, thanks a lot for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next time. Uh, keep playing D&D, &D and keep enjoying RPGs in general. Thanks. Thanks.